So, good morning, everybody. Um, it's our last week of talking about beginning of life issues. So, looking forward to having some some good discussions today. We're going to talk about neonatal ethics and the, the, the tragedy of losing a child. We're going to talk about abortion, uh, specifically trying, not necessarily getting to the ethics of abortion. Hopefully you know by now that abortion is not acceptable. Uh, but in the post-Roe versus Wade landscape, <clears throat> how do we move forward, uh, particularly as clerics and as a church, and then finally looking at uh, Plan B, rape protocol, and things of that sort on Friday. So I, I found whenever I was putting together last year my syllabus, it was strange, at least in my mind, why the NCBC text that deals with healthcare ethics did not have a chapter on neonatal ethics. I don't know why it didn't. Uh, I don't think Nicanor Ostriaco's book either really does either. Um, and so, but I, I found myself as a priest, as much as maybe I had to deal with end-of-life issues, I found that I dealt with a lot more beginning-of-life issues. Maybe it's because I had a younger parish and, you know, I was baptizing families and whatnot. Um, but I figured we would do something or I wanted to do something that dealt with this topic, primarily because it it's at the beginning of life. The amount of resources that I find people are willing to pour into uh, kids who are sick, um, significantly larger than let's say some you know, 85, 86 year old person who's dying of cancer. Not that they don't care about that person, but they realize, hey, we'll let him go. But here at the very beginning of life, let's do everything we can to save the child and we spend uh, as society and culture, lots of money for that. I, mean, I think in a certain sense because, hey, this child can be productive, this child has dignity, let's go and, and do what we can to, to promote life. <clears throat> so what I did is last year, I actually interviewed um, a pediatrician couple, um, one of them, Dr. Matt Cortez, who works in the NICU at Oxners in Lafayette, and his wife, who's also a pediatrician. Um, and I, I went back and listened to it this weekend. It was really good. Not that just I thought that I was like Joe Rogan or something, but uh, his insights and his compassion, and he's a super devout Catholic. I don't, did anyone listen to that interview? Yeah, did you like it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was so good. And a lot of what I'm going to talk about today will draw from that. Um, I really encourage you to listen to it. But then I found that article, even though they bring up a few things that, that are unique and interesting that I think are worthy of us talking about, the Friedrich and Eberl article, Catholic Perspectives on Decision-Making for Critically Ill Newborns and Infants, I think summed up a lot of the main points. So I want to look at that for majority of the class today, but also spend some time at the end of class looking at the death of a child. Um, when you talk about things that you are going to have to struggle with, uh, that is one of them. And um, even though they're not necessarily ethical issues, it's more pastoral, uh, but still I think they're interconnected and I want to be able to talk to you and give you some resources about that. So the, the article starts with uh, these two high-profile cases, which we're not necessarily going to have to get into today, but we're big about five years ago out of the UK of Charlie Gard in 2017 
and Alfie Evans in 2018. Uh, they were both born critically ill with severe uh, abnormalities. Um, Charlie was diagnosed while Alfie technically wasn't diagnosed. Um, it was an undiagnosed case. But in both of these cases, the care team, or the doctors and the other medical professionals, disagreed with the parents regarding life-sustaining treatment and, in Charlie's case, experimental treatment, whether it should be continued. Um, basically, Charlie and Alfie's healthcare team suggested that it would be futile as well as uh, unkind and inhumane and that palliative care should be provided until they died naturally. They weren't necessarily advocating uh, direct euthanasia, but they said that this treatment is futile. Well, the parents wanted to be able to take the kids home, extend the life. It's much more complicated than I'm, I'm giving it here. I got into the media and there was all kinds of things that, that happened. There were some issues of removing, I think one of them from um, nutrition and hydration. Um, but here the parents wanted to sort of provide care for the kids, uh, do what they can to, to take care of them. So it, it highlighted this case, I think, in a way that maybe in years previously we hadn't considered too, too much of. We had the Terry Schiavo case in 2005, but these cases for neonatal. Uh, for the young children who are not at the age of reason, who are sick, what do parents do? Now, granted, we can have some times, uh, as we'll see, and if you listen to the interview with Dr. Cortez, he talks about a case where the, the parents were the ones who wanted to bring the kid home because the kid was sick and just let the, the kid suffer, uh, die at home. And the, the, the doctors and the nurses said, we can't be a part of this we have the ability to help this kid. So it, it kind of goes both ways. Um, what do doctors do? And I also want to make this point here, what do nurses do? We, we, we talk about a lot about doctors, but the ones who have a lot of the hands-on working with the patients are going to be nurses. And, and as priests, as much as you want the consultation of doctors, get to know the nurses. They are the ones who really I have a much better sense and a great degree of what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis than the doctors who often come and, and visit once a day. So that sort of situates it. We could get into some of these vital these conflicts, as we're going to see at the end, about what to do when patients disagree about treatment, uh, what is truly futile treatment, uh, and how do we move on from there. So what I want to do is putting my own two cents in, but also looking at the article, to first address values informing care of <clears throat> these children for you to consider in your own mind. And you're going to know um, most of these already. Um, and again, I'm open to having a discussion about a lot of this. I want to make sure we have a chance at the end to talk about miscarriage and, and the death of a child. But it seems that everything that I've read, and actually I just ordered a book on neonatal healthcare ethics, um, that you're going to get down to this issue of the inherent dignity of the child versus the quality of life arguments. You know what um, what's going to be more valuable? Um, 
And it's what we talked about when it came. We're going to talk about euthanasia. We've talked about it, the, the secular perspective of this child won't have a good quality of life. So why, why extend his life? Why we allow suffering? And of course, a parent doesn't want to see their child suffer. Um, but a lot of the times it could be labeled, as if you read the article, they call it ableism, where you know we, 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 we have a preference for those who are not disabled. Uh, if you're disabled, if you have some type of genetic mal- deformity, uh, you, well, you're not going to have a good quality of life, so we're not going to give you as much treatment. That's a quite a, a distinct possibility. But of course, as Catholics, we're not only going to side for the inherent dignity of life. Uh, we care about the quality of life. We want to alleviate suffering, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> but we also have a preference for the most vulnerable. The second principle is going to be parental stewardship. That Yes, indeed, as we talked about, doctors have a right to be able to offer their opinions, but it's the parent who ultimately has that responsibility to steward the gift of life given to them and the child uh, and to provide for their care. And sometimes, you know, there's going to be a conflict. The doctors are going to disagree. But the big issue is is really the role of the physician and the medical staff and how they work together, because they're the ones who are really caring for the child. Of course, uh, you can never deliberately <clears throat> intend the death of a child, even if it's sick or, or, or weak, in the same way we tie it back to like, hey, we're going to have this early induction of labor. We know the child's not going to survive. It's sort of the same thing as an intentional killing of a child. The doctors should be doing all they can do. And this is what Dr. Cortez said. I thought that was powerful. He realized the doctor, he should be doing everything in his capacity to save the life of the child. Everything in his capacity um, to use these resources that he has. But there's also the, the vocation to alleviate suffering. So just because we're saying that we value the dignity of life over quality of life doesn't mean that we think, well, we're going to let the little six-year-old baby suffer. I mean, six-week-old baby suffer, or six-day-old baby, uh, six-week-old baby suffer. That's not what we're going to do. We want to be able to do the best that we can to <clears throat> alleviate the suffering. However, there's got to be, of course, the consideration of what's ordinary versus extraordinary, what's going to be burdensome uh, on the child and on all other different factors, and the question of futility of treatment. You know, sometimes these parents are hoping for a miracle. And miracles do happen, but if you have a good doctor and the prudential decision to say, we're continuing spending resources, the burden is really significant, it doesn't look like anything's gonna get any better, is it valid to say, we wanna provide palliative care for the child? That, that, these are all these significant ethical questions. And doctors, too, as sort of the final point here, have got to follow their consciences. They have consciences, too. As I said, there are cases where the parent wants to let the child die or the parent doesn't want to provide treatment that the doctors know could help. <clears throat> and I've heard it in my own experience. The nurse say, I can't be a part of this in my conscience. I cannot be a part signing my name to it. Dr. Cortez even said there was a doctor who was not even a Christian, said, I can't sign my name to this. 
we can we can save this kid. We can provide hope. <clears throat> but they have their consciences too. And as much as we we're not trying to say oh, all these doctors are evil. No, man, there are some unbelievable doctors, particularly doctors I think who work in the NICU. Um, doctors and nurses who work in the NICU. Um, you got to have a great respect for them because they see the worst every day. So now they're they're dealing with sick babies, but dying and potentially the death of babies every day. So that not only how hard that is, but then you got to go tell the parents. So, you know, please have care and compassion for the medical professionals who do this. Uh, Let me tell you, like as a priest, we're going to say, you have to be there for a parent one time and, and accompany them where their child is sick and dying. Imagine doing it every day or every week. Uh, the, the toll that would take on your mind, uh, unbelievable. So <clears throat> I don't know, were there any other considerations? I mean, these are all pretty basic. Um, and when it comes to just the, the working together, but the article I thought provided a really interesting insight when it came to the prudential use of technology. How many of y'all have been to a NICU and have been there? Or if you've been to the hospital with a friend whose baby was there, I mean, there's a lot of technology in there. I mean, there are machines. I mean, it looks like, you know, the, the back to tank from Empire Strikes Back. I mean, it's crazy. They got all kinds of tubes coming out, all these different things. That was for you, Jeremy. Uh, <laughs> notice I quoted the original trilogy, not the prequels. <laughs> prequels. <clears throat> so I want to say that technology is good. If we didn't have that, I mean, what the infant mortality rate would be. It, it would be horrible. Uh, it, it would be, and the suffering. It's, so, it's good that we have these advances, and I hope more greater advances in medicine and technology. However, we have got to be aware of the the the, the ever encroaching technocratic paradigm. You are one of the things I don't maybe mention that like it's it really is. It's the Empire versus the Ewoks. <laughs> Return of the Jedi is all about that. We are the Ewoks. I mean, Darth Vader was a man, but he sort of becomes this machine. There's a fake planet. And the Ewoks, they, they're in touch with nature. So anyhow, what'd you say? Oh, look, they were supposed to, it was originally supposed to be Kashyyyk. It was originally supposed to be the Wookiees, but they didn't have the technology. But the child, but remember, the, 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 the Ewoks are childlike. So listen to Samaritatus Bonus. Every technical advance in healthcare calls for growth and moral discernment to avoid an unbalanced and dehumanizing use of the technologies, especially in the critical or terminal states of human life. And it's one thing, like, you know, so many times I see people at the end of their life, they want to die at home. They don't want to die tied up to all these machines. Um, and look, man, I had just last Christmas to go to the hospital a couple that I married um, and I'm good friends with, their little baby was born with this heart defect and had to have a surgery. And they were, the child, thank goodness, is fine now. But I, I, it, it, I've seen it so many times. And I think it 
it's it's jarring when you don't know the family or the kid, but when you do know the family or the kid, it's even more. This little baby with little, this big, tubes coming out of every orifice and machines hooked up. It's good because the machine is keeping the child alive, but it, it is jarring. And so what the article brings up, and I had never heard of this before, but I'd like to discuss a little bit. Uh, the authors quote this Albert Borgman. I don't know who he is, even though Borg is kind of like Man and Machine from Star Trek, if you want to bring in that. <clears throat> the, yeah, but they're connected. Computer. Device paradigm. The device paradigm. So here we have the technocratic paradigm. But the technocratic paradigm, I guess, is sort of put together in, these, in a device. At intensive care settings, especially pediatric or neonatal ICUs, the routine and often morally illicit means of preserving life require reliance on devices such as ventilators and feeding tubes. Good. But what may be seen as morally required in ordinary technological care may also lead to eventual disengagement from one's child. That I'm like, when, when the kid's all connected, can you touch it? You know, it's in, it's in the incubator. You, the mom wants to hold the child, but you can't. The device paradigm of pediatric ICUs also disrupts shared decision-making between parents and providers, although this disruption is often insidious and easily overlooked. Specific technological interventions not only enter into the decision-making progress, which is normal, and circumscribe what decisions can and cannot be made, but the technological milieu itself shapes the decision-making process. Now, I think that is fascinating insight to talk about. And parents and providers are not sufficiently attuned to the ways in which technologies enter into the decision-making calculus. How does that happen? So like, again, it, well, this person has a broken leg. Do we put a cast on it or not? You could say the cast is technology, but I think when we get into these devices that are used to sustain life, <clears throat> and it's kind of like, well, you have it, you should use it. Yeah, you should, but we've got to understand, I think particularly for neonatal kids, and I think as I was reading this, uh, situations for other adults too. How do these devices impact our decision-making? And so what the authors do is then go down and talk about specific ways they believe technology, particular in NICUs, um, impact decision-making. I'll go over a few and then I'd like to sort of have a discussion about this. First, that tech generates some decisions themselves, like when to remove a generator or should we offer experimental treatment. The fact that the technology exists brings up the question. So if we didn't have ventilators, you wouldn't have the question. But now that you have it, should we use it or when should we remove it? Number two, parents and providers rely on tech to make decisions. And again, this is not the problem. This is just facts, like an MRI. I mean, we, what do we do here? Well, let's get an MRI. Let's get the blood work. Uh, this is sort of, there's not necessarily a moral dimension to this. We, we rely on instruments. We rely on devices 
to produce data to help us diagnose and to treat. But they'll say that the device paradigm often robs parents of decision-making. They feel like this decision that the doctors made without their consultation or without fully explaining what happened, we had to do it. The doctor had to do it. Well, what did the doctor do? I don't know what the doctor did, but the doctor had to do it. The doctor explained to you what he had to do. No, he didn't, or maybe he did, but I didn't understand. Just trust me. The doctor, Jesus himself could be explaining to you what he's about to do, and when you are freaking out, or your wife's freaking out, or your husband's freaking out because your kid's about to die, he might as well be speaking in, you know, Klingon, whatever. You're not going to listen. We're going to throw all this, all the... So, and what happens is that not only is the parent already alienated from the child because the child's in the little incubator and can't touch him, now uh, I need some buy-in to this discussion. And so I've seen it a lot of times when, yeah, the parents are there and I'm saying, I go to see them, well, what's happening? Well, uh, we don't know. They did this and this and this. And they feel like, they're just kind of going with the flow. It's only afterwards they realize, wait, this wasn't explained or it wasn't. So, but I've seen a lot better cases, a lot more cases than the negative stuff where these nurses in particular, and these, I mean, it takes a special type of nurse to work in a NICU, it just does, who will very patiently well, doctors maybe sort of think on the high levels of minds, but, but pay, speak to these parents every step of the way. This is what's going on. If you, I also know some wonderful doctors. Here is my card. Call me any time of day. I am going to explain this to you. Uh, you're not going to bother me. You can call me at 2 o'clock in the morning. We're going to get through this together. That's what we're looking for. And, and I think it happens more often than not. That's my own opinion. Uh, that, that we have some unbelievable doctors and nurses out there. And again, I mean, if you're seeing this every day and you become and you don't, you're not attuned to the parents. You should. You're not going to last in in this this part of the hospital. But the thing that it brings up, which I think is kind of the the most important, is it talks about it impairs shared decision making and leads to stalemates where sometimes the parents falsely hope for a miracle. The the, the miracle is going to happen and and want to keep pushing treatment. Now, this happens at the end of life, too. You know, grandpa's 92 years old, dying of cancer, but we we think he's going to get better. No, let's let him go. And because of the beginning of life, we, we can want a miracle. You don't want to lose your child. But the doc, doctors are going to argue that it's futile or it's going to cause undue pain and suffering, but it's very hard for those parents to, to accept it. And again, it's the doctors are the ones, I mean, if you trust them, are going to make a prudential decision. Um, and a lot of the times these parents then not only maybe hoping for a miracle, but they fear that if they do remove the ventilator or they do remove this treatment, then they will be responsible for the death of their child. 
you know, it, it makes sense. And so this last quote, when technologies can no longer be objectively useful, uh, cannot restore the child to a specific level of function, or I'll even say these, these devices, providers may make claims about quality of life and suffering that reveal their immersion in the device paradigm. That's what I think is interesting. In which physical and social engagement with things, or in this case, sick infants, persons, is burdensome rather than meaningful. Such an attitude can then lead to the determination that further treatment would be inappropriate or non-beneficial because the patient's overall condition is not expected to improve. Now, again, I'm not a doctor, but I'm not saying that there, there, there is indeed futility of treatment does exist. But we've got to ask ourselves, well, is it, is it because you're just going to see caring for this child as a burden? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I need to read more on that. Um, but it, the technology creates these, these difficult issues. So anyhow, yes. Well, uh, taking for the context of the, 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 the paper itself, as far as I understand it, providers may make claims that quality of life and suffering that revealed their immersion in the device paradigm. So, I, I, what, what is their job other than to use technology to help heal or... No, but it's that, that, that reveal their immersion. It doesn't mean that just because they say, I don't think it means just because they say that they, they are immersed in the device paradigm. But this is something that I think the doctors, the parents can talk about together is that instead of encountering the child itself, the sick person, they're focused too much on seeing the potential for these devices and these technologies and rather than engaging the person and the fact that the parent may want to care for the child, even... I think that I think that's a possibility what they're trying to say. I think it's more how they So, in my opinion, 
this is the same problem that Kafka raises, where you're stuck in a system and you're not a full, moral, educated human being, and you don't take personal responsibility and understand all the moral decisions that other people have to do. So you just are this, this kind of servant to this structure where you just do things because you don't want to take moral responsibility for your actions. So I don't think the problem is technique. Just like the problem in the Kafka story is in bureaucracy, they're both technological structures. Mm -hmm. The problem is when people who aren't fully formed engage in them, and they start seeding their rights and become slaves to them. So SOPs are great, instant action, because we know exactly if they redline like this, we're going to get 20 CCs of that. You don't have time to explain it and get them up to speed, but you do need to have somebody. This is what hospitals should do. Doctors are overworked, understaffed. There's nobody there to actually accompany the parents and explain to them what's going on as it happens. Because a lot of times parents should be making the decision on whether they take that instant action to save the kid. No, that's the, prudent, the prudential decision that enables quick action that the doctors and the staff is going to have to have. That's the next part, though, we talk about ex explaining the duty here of explaining to overcome these stalemates. But that's I, I was going to get to that in a bit. What do you all think of, though, the, the argument of the article? I'm not saying that. I agree fully with everything, or you have to agree fully with everything, but the, this role of decision-making and technology's impact on it. I mean, I just, I, I dug around for a lot of stuff. I found a book finally this weekend that does, from I think a fairly Catholic conservative perspective, neonatal ethics, uh, but there wasn't a lot that I found. I like it. I think it could be developed more. I, so what, what they're doing, right, is they're taking, they're like, ooh, democratic paradigm, spooky, and then pretty, like, directly inserting that in the neonatal ethics, and I don't think they quite make the leap. I would like to see more of a connection between why those two things are interacting on such a deep level. I've seen it done in other fields. Like, we had a, a prop at UD who was, like, really into using Heidegger to, like, criticize factory farming. Mm -hmm. That was just her thing, right? And it was this, it, it was, but it was this same argument. It was like, this is techne, right? This is how it's kind of taking over and we're not asking questions about it and it's kind of ruining this aspect of our society, right? And I feel like they're trying to do the same thing here, but I don't see the link as clear. Mm -hmm. <coughs> hey, but my perspective, it's, it's, I have, when I read this, it at least for me explained what I've seen before in parents feeling trapped. I don't think they're really trapped. Uh, the doctors are really good and they're doing their best. Like, like for instance, one of them was like, well, why didn't the doctor tell me about this condition? I don't know. Maybe the doctor tried to tell you about the condition, but you didn't hear. Maybe he didn't know the condition was there. There are all these different, these different factors that come into play. And that's why I think the next point is the, the really important one. Yeah, buffered self versus porous self. The more technology you have, the more screens you have, the more mitigation you have, the less personal interaction you have. It just feels like all your decisions and your actions are just part of this sort of <coughs> video game world that's not real. <coughs> mm -hmm. So there seems to be something of that going on with the neonatal care and all the machines that is becoming this buffered, uh, mitigated, non-intimate, non-personal uh, mm -hmm. interaction. And that just colors everyone. Um, it's frustrating for the parents, and it allows doctors 
who otherwise would be well-meaning and you know and, and, uh, and empathetic to sort of hide behind that buffering. Mm -hmm. Like, well, you know, there's not going to be quality of life. The machines aren't working, so let's just move on. So mediated, there's a screen that mediates instead of the, the authentic human contact, whether it be with the parents or the kids or the doctors with the... Agency. It's the burden of real agency that's it's, it's so easy to want to let go and but it's so important to uh, take home. I think the diagnosis is technology. I, I agree with that. And I think the diagnosis of technology, protect, technology being the problem, isn't giving us a way forward. It's not helping us see what is lacking. So I, I would wish he was talk about what, what development needs to happen on the part of these people. Chris is making faces. What is your what are, are you making faces, Chris? Oh yeah, we're gonna to get to that one because that's that breaches children and end of life. Yeah. So that's just what's playing in my head, like how difficult the situation and how the dog is able to like the sense of reading like just I mean I don't know, it's just mind blowing, like mind boggling. Well, that's where I think that the next part, at least as I understood it, and then incorporating my own experience and what we got from Dr. Cortez and other things that I, other doctors I've talked to. So let, let's say that this device paradigm exists. Let's say that there is mediation. Let's say that we have this. I, I'm not one to say that we get rid of it or technology is evil. I think if we were talked about, we can't say technology is necessarily neutral. But we're using it for good, but there are pitfalls. How do we address the pitfalls? And the, the reality that shared decision-making is so important, that the doctors are the ones who are ultimately going to know better. And I think most people do it. When you go to the doctor, you know, you go to the doctor because you, you believe he knows better. Unless now they say that you watch your TV shows and you go to WebMD and you know better than the doctor. It's like a lawyer. You know, no one goes to the lawyer and tells you know better. Let me tell you one professor and the people come to you all the time and they think they know better. And that's priesthood. Oh, that's guy right here. They, they, they would, they, they never even confirm. They know better than you when it comes to spiritual stuff. But that's a different story. And then again, let's talk about the technocratic paradigm. What about the, the, the role of the state when all of a sudden the, the, the governments are saying, well, siding with the doctors or whatever in their own uh, perspective of things. But what, I, again, from my experience and in listening and talking to the doctors that I know, parents, here's like, I think that the responsibility here is on the doctors, the medical staff, realizing that they do have the knowledge and expertise, and we're assuming here that they want to do the right thing, and hospitals as, as bureaucracies too. You have, all the time, you have uh, people, family members, who are in these very precarious situations, who care, but maybe don't know everything, and they don't even realize that they're, they're being influenced by this technocratic paradigm. Parents want to know two things. Will my child live and will my child be quote unquote normal? 
That's what they want to know. Now, granted, you could say that maybe the parents have this Gerber baby standard, so we could ask ourselves what exactly is normal, um, or what kind of life will the child have, and these are valid. These are real questions, and that doctors and medical staff need to be honest. They need to be honest. And that's where, you know, virtues are going to come in. And, uh, and I think uh, a prudential use of technology, but also this willingness to explain to parents what's happening. And that's where, again, the doctor who has to make the quick decision and the nurse has to make the quick decision. So you could be there in the hospital room and all of a sudden there's a beep on the computer of the baby that goes to the nurse's uh, office, the, the, the head station. Everyone rushes in and the parents are sitting there. What's going on? Well, they don't necessarily have time to explain to you what's going on. And, and But what is the way to be able to say, okay, one of the nurses could step back. I don't know what the protocol is in these hospitals. The ones that I've seen do care about the parents uh, to be able to try to, to encourage things and to, to encourage human interaction. Um, and this is where I do think that question of the personalism comes in. We're treating persons, not problems. Um, and not only for the child, but for the parents. So they make the suggestion, you know, in certain cases, turn off the machines, let the parents hold the child, let the parents touch the little baby's toe. That, that not only the parents, the kid needs it. The kid needs some type of human contact. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a massive difficulty for the, uh, the, the parents not to hold it, but we know that through physical touch, children heal quicker. It's better. They need that care. So for the first few weeks of your life, you're just stuck in a little box. And the only time you're being touched is like when you're being stuck with little needles. Go watch a little, watch a little premature baby stuck with needles. It, it sucks. I mean, for the baby, for, for the parents, for everybody. I don't want to watch it. But the also that need to provide spiritual support. And this is where the ERDs come in. The whole second part is the pastoral and spiritual responsibility of Catholic health care. The, the, the need to say, hey, okay, the doctors can explain it, they make decisions, but what kind of spiritual support are we giving to these parents? Uh, I found that most secular hospitals do it too. Maybe I'm just in, from what I've talked to, I mean, Y'all are all going to be in CPE this summer. How many of you are going to be in secular hospitals? Or, yeah, and you're, you're going to be there. So there's, now granted, what type of care or what type of paradigm they're going to use, but at least I think it is pretty customary practices, even for, um, I mean, like, Teresa, your husband works at Oxners. They have a spiritual care, yeah. Yeah, they have, yeah. and so... But I'll tell you, the importance of your presence as a priest. Um, there are going to be chaplains at the hospital, but, you know, and you're going to hopefully find out if one of your parishioners have a child, like if you watch the video that I posted yesterday, oh, the child has Down syndrome, or the child is sick, or the child has some genetic abnormality, or the child 
has a heart condition, you know, you, you'll be able to go there. And usually people are pretty cool about letting the priest back in uh, to do a baptism if you need to. You can't anoint the baby. There's no that. But you can pray with the child. You're going to explain to the parents why you can't anoint the baby because the baby doesn't have the, the reason yet. But, you know, you can you can do some type of a little prayer with them. They won't know the, they won't know the difference. It's not going to be a big deal. Um but one of the things that I, I kind of love the most is what Dr. Cortez repeated over and over again. I really please listen to his, his podcast. Doctors need to give parents hope. The parents are already struggling enough. You got to be honest, and I think priests need to give parents hope too. We're men of we're, we're men of hope. Hey, listen, I don't know what's going to happen, but we're going to try our best. Look, babies are pretty resilient. Uh, they're they're tough. You know, um, and you never know what will happen. And, and, and you could ask any NICU doctor. These babies that they, in their own prudential decision, said had a 15% chance to live or discharge, come back, and they're totally normal. I, you know, the, the case that he mentions, I remember it so well. It's a couple um, that I had come, came through the university, and this is, they were pregnant, so excited got married, um, and this is right when COVID began. This is like holy week, holy week, that they realized that the child has some condition in his brain and they're going to have to put a shunt into this little newborn baby's brain and ship him over to Houston and it may not work. We didn't think it was going to work at all. Like, what's the decision? Do they do this procedure or not do the procedure? And I remember Dr. Cortez was like, I don't think this baby's going to live. And so this this would be a tremendous suffering. Um, but it ends up, they go, do it, and then the kid's totally normal, totally normal. And it was a miracle. I mean, like, really, it was a miracle how it all resolved. I don't remember all the details because my, my parochial vicar had gotten sick right at the time of the triduum. So I had to do it all myself, and anyhow, and we were doing the cameras and everything. I was by myself in the church with the deacons. But now, like, okay, yeah, so you have that, and you do have the possibility of, like, sometimes, yeah, we're going to bring the child at home. We have the possibility, as we learned from from Joseph, to to do a lot of care at home if you want to create a good environment there. so, yeah, I, I don't think there's necessarily an objection to bringing the child home. It's just that when you come to a baby and there's a chance for living, it's going to be much easier to keep the kid in the hospital than an old person bring home just to let die naturally. There's a lot more support in the hospital. Um, but I want to end, I mean, because a lot of this is just sort of pastoral stuff. And uh, the response that most you can do here is to be present to the parents and to consult. They're going to ask you for things like, should we do this procedure? And uh, I really don't know a lot of details of neonatal ethics, but your pastoral presence, particularly even if you know the doctor, it can be very helpful. But there are going to be times, whether it be in a NICU or whether it be just in general that 
parents are going to lose their children. I'll tell you right now, there's nothing worse than this. Nothing. Losing grandpa is bad. Losing your spouse is bad. But losing a child, uh, the grief can be long-lasting and completely overwhelming. And there are so many different ways. Miscarriage is more common than you think it is. Children who die as a result of genetic or birth defects, SIDS, a tragic accident. I mean, we're kind of putting it within the neonatal context here. Um, and as a priest, let me tell you, you think that's uh, walking with them during this process, but then doing the funeral. Funeral's the worst. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's how it is. Uh, having to be there and just the, the, the grief and the ma- massive amounts of people and the questioning that comes through it all. Um, so I, there's been, this been developed in the church. I, I really think of, there's been some wonderful ministries in general. I think the church has developed in these different areas. areas. One of them has been to uh, parents who have lost children. Remember, like, lost children can lead significant factors to divorce. Also, one of the things that I learned um, that a lot of um, homeless people, the mental illness came from the loss of a child. Often they blame themselves for. Um, you know, if the parents begin to uh, blame themselves, you know, if it's a, Sid, a SIDS child, I could have done something different. And, and again, the overthinking starts and it's just a complete, it's like a dark hole that it's hard to get out of. What, what do you do as a priest um, or what are, is available? First of all, most important, do not give stupid explanations. Okay? Well, God wouldn't give you anything more than you can handle. Don't ever say something like that. All right? And, and, and as if you watch the video from the Andersons, I, I remember doing this, but I didn't realize it had that big of an impact. I, I saw them after mass when they had first really found out and I just hugged them. Uh, you don't say anything. You could say, hey, I'm here for you, but don't, don't try to give some theological explanation. They don't want that. They don't need that. You're not going to give one. Why do, why do babies die? I, I don't know. Don't tell them, like, go, go meditate on the... the, the um, the holy innocence and Herod's don't don't do that. Really, don't do that. <laughs> you know, um, you know. I, I, of course, presence at all stages is important. Encouragement of grief, grief counseling and therapy. But one of the best things that's out there right now, and I put the video from the founders on there, is Redbird Ministries. If y'all heard of Redbird Ministries, it's actually out of our diocese but it's sort of spread nationwide now. Um, and watch their video testimony of a couple in Broad Ridge who lost a child and just started this, this wonderful ministry of uh, support for couples, but particularly your Catholic couples who've lost children. Um, they have a website, know this website because you're gonna encounter this to be able to refer to them because you could give them consolation, but the real consolation comes from other couples who've lost children. Hey, listen, we've been through this before. We're going to walk through it with you. 
one of the ones that you're going to really encounter mo more often, though, is miscarriages. Um, this is real and often very, very secret grief that parents are not going to tell you. A, a lot of people about, they'll tell you, especially for a couple that's had multiple miscarriages. Um, so, you know, what do you, what do you do? How do you accompany parents in any of these situations? I'll give a few just very brief kind of advices, uh, and then we can have a little discussion. I think it is, for couples who have miscarriage, in the Book of Blessings, as strange as the way that Book of Blessings is arranged, there is a blessing for couples who have miscarried. Like, get to know that blessing. Uh, I, I, it's never fun. I mean, I did it for a couple I married and they had a miscarriage just within a few months of after marriage. And I drove to their house because, you know, because the thing is that sometimes the wife has to pass the remains and, and, and it's, it, it's, can be, uh, a process, um, and so you can bless them there at the house, be present to them often the husband and wife are going to just want to kind of be by themselves and and it's hard particularly when they've told everybody hey we're having a baby and then the miscarriage comes that that's that's a real struggle um there's all the question you're going to get is the burial of remains father we want to bury the remains now again you could say it depends on the stage i, I will do that let's it's fine you can have a mass you know, without getting into the, is it a new, is it we do the non-baptized, whatever. Sometimes they'll bury them in their backyard. Sometimes they'll have a funeral plot. Do what you can to be present to that um, because it, it, it is uh, uh, that ritual of prayer and of presence is important. I, you know, <clears throat> what... What also I've had, and this is still ingrained in my memory uh, of a couple. This has been now 15 years ago. She had twins, and they found out like the day of or the day before that they were going to be stillborn. Uh, and she, you, have to, you have to know you are going, I, I can't even, you're going to pass these two children that you've been, waiting for for nine months and the day before you know they're gonna they're gonna be dead and so i remember walking into the room after it and the mom is holding the two little blue babies uh you, you don't forget it and the dad there and what do you say it's kind of weird but you know so we did a funeral I mean, that was a full funeral. And, and I remember being and standing next to the parents who were good friends of mine as we just kind of took the little box, the little boxes, and put it into the, into the grave. Um, you know? And then just a couple years ago, another couple, and this is the point where I may get, I still very much affects me. This couple... Uh, Wonderful couple. I did their wedding. I love them to death. Have a couple of kids, cutest little kids, coming to mass. Have a third kid. I think it was the third kid. 
and they find out kind of early on that the child has some genetic abnormality, I forgot what it was, that wouldn't live an hour after it was born. And again, you've always heard stories like this. Well, it's, kids going to be, they're not going to live, and they end up living many years, but they knew this was going to happen. And there was like a push, I think, by some doctors or people, of course, say, well, you know, have an abortion. And she says, no, no. And, and was on social media, would give the testimony of like, she's growing and it's what she's going through and there was this great support. And she had the child, the child, five minutes maybe, I can't remember exactly how long it was, maybe an hour, but I, I don't think it was that long. And I, I got to talk to the mom, I'm not gonna give her name, before at the funeral, which was rough. But she said, oh, I'm going to start growing here. She said, you know, the, the five minutes that I had to hold that baby and show him love was worth it. Five minutes. And she knew, said, I'll see my child in heaven. But it was worth it because it's my kid. That, I, mean, I told her, I was bawling at the funeral. So, you know, that's a powerful testimony. And blew me away. And, you know, so I still, you know, you accompany the couple. We're there together, burying the, 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 the child. And just the impact that it had on, on everyone there. I mean, still, this is two and a half years later. It still has an impact on me. Um, and, and they've moved on. And uh, you, do, you never move on from that. But just that, that impression. And particularly as, as you have people that you know you love and they pass away, you'd give a million dollars for five mil- minutes with them. A million dollars for five minutes with someone who passed away. But the, the chance to hold your child for five minutes, even though the child's gonna die in your arms, oh, for me, that's just such a powerful testimony. And you know, if you, again, I, 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 I was not a hospital chaplain, but go talk to the, your hospital chaplains and your dioceses and tell, have them tell you stories. Um, you know, there's the tragedies, but also a lot of really positive, positive things. So it is as hard as it is, it's worth it, um, as a priest to be able to be present to like Mary standing at the foot of the cross. That's basically what you are. And in a certain sense, I think you're more Marian than Christ here. You're going to be at the foot of the cross. You can't say anything, but you're present there, um, or maybe more like your John at the foot of the cross, where the mother receives the probably better the the, the dead the son the, the body of her dead child. You could just stand there. John didn't. What was John going to say? He's 20 years old. He didn't know what's going on. Um, but you can be present. So anyhow, we'll close the glory be. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. One in the beginning is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. We'll, we'll talk.